0: Hey guys, Eric Lindeen here. I'm the lead pastor of Mosaic Church in Maple Grove, Minnesota. Welcome to our podcast. Thank you for joining us today. I hope this message inspires you, encourages you and transforms you. And that this is just the beginning of a conversation between you and Jesus. Enjoy the message.
1: Hey, how's it going? So, my name is Jeremy, and uh, this is my second time to be with Mosaic. Um, I am, what's that? Thanks, good to be seen. uh, So, I'm here for Eric. Eric and I are friends. I pastor in another area in the Northwest Metro, and he said uh, he was looking for some time away, and I said I'd be glad to come back. Um, I was here, uh, I think, the weekend before my daughter got married that was successful Um, came to find out that someone that knows my daughter's new mother-in-law attends this church. Are you here today? No? Someone took pictures in this corner. Hey, is this your soon-to-be whatever? It's like, right on. So um, that was kind of a fun small world moment. Uh, Since we left, my two youngest daughters, who are 10 and 9, have talked about how awesome this church is and how much they love the kids' ministry, and they want to know when we can start coming back. And uh, so you, you don't like our church? You know, and they're like, oh, it's fine. But we go every week, you know. They're like, this is kind of new. And, and they were really nice. So am like, what your mom leads the kids ministry? You don't think they're nice? Well, it's mom, you know. And so they see mom all the time. And so they're they're on their way to Fargo, so they're not with us today. But um, I am really glad to be with you. I wanted to kick things off. We are on January 14th, in case you didn't know. Last I checked, the Packers are beating the Cowboys, which makes me a little bit sad. I'm from Dallas, so I am that guy. I love the Cowboys when it comes to football, Um Although I don't expect much out of them, which is part of, you know, this time of year for a Cowboys fan. Um, but we're two weeks into the new year, and I'm curious, did anybody make New Year's resolutions? So you're shaking your head no. Are you shaking your head no because you don't ever? You're tired of them all together? Like, they, 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 they disappoint you, you just, the, the first one. Anybody make a New Year's resolution? Yeah? Are you still keeping it? So far. Nice. I don't make resolutions. And I'll talk about why in just a minute. But what I do want to talk about is why change fails. When I asked Eric what was the theme for right now, he says we're going through a series of Matthew and Luke, just looking at life of Jesus and things with the idea that Jesus changes everything. So if Jesus changes everything, let's have this conversation. Why does change fail? So I want to bring up just a handful of quotes with you. And uh, these quotes come from some of America's top authors in the world of change management. I'm not going to give you their names in their books because some of them would offend you. Um, but these are the thoughts that are pervasive throughout the American culture, right? So here, here's the first one. The pain of not changing has to be greater than the pain of changing for us to really change. Agree or disagree? Raise your hand if you agree. Raise your hand if you disagree. Let us think in for a second. The pain of not changing has to be greater than the pain of changing for us to really change. Dave Ramsey, if you listen to financial information from him, he said you have to be sick and tired of being sick and tired, and then you'll finally do something about it. That's kind of the common way of saying this statement right here. This is from big psychological expert. Now, keep in mind here, when we talk about resolutions and change, most people want to change. Most people will see something about their lives and they want to change. So, so on average, 85% of Americans this year admitted to making a 2024 New Year's resolution. We're in the 15%. 85%, and of that 85%, now take that number, that becomes 100 of the next number, okay? The 85% total population who admitted. So of that group, 78% of them will fail by January 14th. Oh, that's today. Maybe they weren't tired. Maybe their pain wasn't the same. You can't change yourself, another expert says. So don't even try. Stop chasing it. Go and do something instead. Agree or disagree if you agree with that statement. You can't change yourself, so don't even try. Stop chasing it. How many of us chase change like a dog chasing its tail? So over the last 18 months, I've had three of my children get married, and within just a couple of months of getting married, they all got puppies. But y'all should figure out how to be married first, because puppies come in and interrupt everything. And there's this one little puppy, his name's Crouton, he's a, a, a 16, yeah, Crouton, right? He's a 16, the other dog's name is Sir and Scooby, and Scooby looks like Scooby, he's got the collar and everything. Sir is an Alaskan Husky, and they just call him Sir. I'm like, the dog thinks his name is No Sir, because that's all I ever hear from him, No Sir. And then there's crew time, but he's called Crew for short, and Crew's the youngest of the group. And uh, he, he's kind of fresh out the litter, and you can take his tail and tickle his nose and do like that, and he'll start just going in circles around his tail. And sometimes we chase change like a dog chasing its tail. And we don't really know how to embrace change or navigate change or get into change, And this guy, he happens to say, don't even try it. You can't do it. You are you. So go do something else instead. How about this one? Agree or disagree. You will either step forward into growth or step backward into safety. Agree or disagree. How many of you agree with that? I see a lot of head nodding on that one. How many of you disagree with that one? There really are just, you either are growing forward or you're growing backward. When it comes to living things, that's what works. You're either getting stronger and healthier or you're atrophying. And, and even though atrophy is like negative growth, it's still growth. Uh, four months ago, I was doing some work with a friend busting through some concrete and I, I hurt my elbow, and the doctor went, Well, you're older now. I said, ah. What a diagnosis you're older now <laughs> like I paid you to tell me that and and so for four months they've been treating it for like some type of tendonitis and it, it keeps hurting but the pain has shifted and so I was t- talking to them about it the other day and they come to find out that it's actually torn And so now I've been four months where I can't work out and lift weights and, and do this kind of stuff and my wife is like, you need to do something about your elbow, or otherwise you're going to become like one of those weak guys. And, like, and then if you're not big and strong, then you're kind of useless, it feels like. That's kind of what she communicates. She didn't mean it that way, but, but if you can't be big and strong, then, then what are you going to be? The idea is like if you don't start growing forward, you're going to lose strength, and you can't really afford to do that. Because when you're older, it's harder to get strength back. Thanks, Doc. You either step forward into growth or step backward. and say, let's look at the next one. People aren't wired for big sweeping changes. Agree or disagree? Raise your hand if you agree. People aren't wired for big sweeping changes. How I many of you disagree with that? So this is why they think most resolutions fail, is because most resolutions are made to be these giant sweeping things. And there's no, no real structure to them. And, and it's like, you know, um, I love the great British bake-off in Paul Hollywood. He'll sit there and go, there's, there's just no structure to your bread. And, and he says structure, and it's stodgy. And, and then you're like, what? What is stodgy even mean? My grandmother was British. I never heard her use the word stodgy. But apparently if you bake something and it's whatever that is, it's stodgy. People aren't wired for big sweeping changes. And because we can't get the quick results that we want, we give up on the change altogether. Now, here's the one thing all four thinkers have in common who shared those thoughts. None of them believe in Jesus. Not one. However, all four of them really like this guy, Abraham Maslow. All four of them are uniquely influenced by Abraham Maslow. Let's go to the next slide. Maslow would say what is necessary to change a person is for a person to change his awareness of himself or for a person to change her awareness of herself. Now, let's, let's take in kind of now, let's bring it to a, a Christian idea for just a minute. Paul has this sweeping statement in Romans. It says, all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Now, do you really want more awareness of yourself? When you hear that type of, is it an accusation or is it a truthful affirmation? that all have sinned, is that really necessary for us to change ourselves? Well, all four of those thinkers who are not Christians are all highly influenced by Abraham Maslow. And so much of what we do in the business world, in life coaching, and in general psychology and education today is influenced by what we call Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Maslow's hierarchy of needs looks like this, it's a pyramid, and maybe we like it because it's a shape, and maybe we can remember it because it's a shape, but it looks like this. It essentially walks you through five different zones of how you become your best self. And they would say, Maslow would say, that you can't be your best self without dealing with safety first. Are you going to survive? Do you have food? Do you have water? Do you have warmth? Do you have clothing? Do you have the the most basic essentials of human survival? And without those most basic essentials, you can't move forward. The, The next piece of that is security. Not only will you survive, but do you feel safe? Because you can be completely threatened in your own home. Imagine being a kid during the year 2020, and you're getting sent home, and you can't go to school. And at home, there is no food, there is neglect and abuse, and you're absolutely terrified to be there, and you have nowhere else to go. But that's the environment that you have to be in. For a lot of America, that was the case. School, for all of its pros and cons, for many, was the safest place that they knew. And now we took people out of that safest place and put them into the most threatening place and invited them to grow and to live and to thrive. Husbands and wives who were in the same home, brothers and sisters who were in the same home, and all of a sudden, it didn't feel so safe and it didn't feel so secure. And we wonder why the world looks like it does right now. Because we still see the after effects of even just those few short months. I mean, that whole year, did the world feel safe and did the world feel secure? Not really. If you can find security and safety, then the next piece of Maslow's hierarchy is belonging. That that people outside of you make you feel affirmed, respected, accepted. Maybe that's a church community, maybe that's co-workers, maybe that's family, but somebody outside of you makes you feel like you belong. And as you find belonging in those types of pieces, then you can start to have self-esteem. We hear this word often, don't we? I remember when I was a kid, it was really the first time that the phrasing of self esteem had found its way into the general conversation of of raising a kid. Do they have self esteem? Does he or she have self esteem? What's their view of themselves? Well, everybody has self esteem. It's either you have a high self esteem, a moderate self esteem, a low self esteem. Like you all have a view of yourself. And that's all going to be built, according to Maslow, off of all these other pieces. But as you have a strong self-esteem, now you can step forward into being your best self. Maslow's actual word is self-actualization. And you can be the best that you can be. And the absolute best version of you is waiting for you at the top of the pyramid. And you can get there by looking at each of the platforms and are you able to see those necessary pieces of growth. And most of the world today, since Maslow came out with his theory on the hierarchy of human need, most of the world believes that Maslow was right. Now, like we like to do, we will argue with things and ideas all the time. Maslow would summarize the story of the human race like this. The story of the human race is that men and women sell themselves short. And now you come into the space of why does change fail? If Jesus is the one who changes everything, when it comes to our relationship with each other and with God and the world around us, does anything really matter? Because it's just going to fail, right? Like like the best ideas and the best intentions don't seem to get uh, us out of this this muck of life that we're often in, and we wonder what's going to happen next. So how do we really find our way forward? And if Jesus changes everything, what does he really change? If most of the world looks at Maslow and goes, this is how it's supposed to be navigated. This is how we become the best people we can become. Does the gospel meet that space? Or does the gospel flip it on its head? What really is the good news of Jesus? So I wanna invite you to Matthew chapter three, verses 13 through 17. Now, a little setup to Matthew chapter three. Matthew three is gonna record about John the Baptist. And and John the Baptist is is the one who's supposed to prepare the way for Jesus, right? So so they're first cousins, uh, if you keep up with family relationships, they're first cousins. um, John is born, he's older. Somehow he ends up in the wilderness. God sends him out that way. It's honey. I'm, I'm a big fan. Locust, still working on that one. And he's got a really awesome coat. Like when John shows up on the scene, like his coat draws attention. It's like, like long camel hair. Um, but he's a little bit weird. Like if it's not eating locusts is weird enough, he's a little bit weird. And, and people aren't real for sure what to do with him. And he starts to preach. And as he begins to preach, he kind of ticks off the religious establishment and the king. And and you probably shouldn't tick off the king, but John ticked off the king, and that creates all kinds of problems. And so John starts to say, you need to repent, turn from what you're doing, follow what God is doing, because he's sending someone who's greater than me. You need to be baptized by water now, because the one who's coming after me is going to baptize with fire and the Spirit. Water sounds like a pretty safe place when it comes to fire being around, right? And so, so John is kind of hyping this thing. And he would say, the winnowing fork is already at hand, and he's going to clear the threshold, which means all of you people, and John was a finger pointer. That's why I'm pointing a finger. So those of you online, yes, John is pointing the finger at you. All of you, all of you need to get right because judgment's coming. Imagine the scene when everybody's watching this happen. And then Jesus kind of rolls up to John and says, John, I need you to baptize me. John's like, no, you're the guy. Why are you putting yourself under me? Because baptism in the ancient world was a form of submission. When you were baptized by somebody, it said that you were lining your life up with their teaching. It wasn't exclusively Christian. Christianity wasn't a thing at that moment. It definitely wasn't exclusively Baptist because they come much later. But it was a statement of identification and submission. So why is the one John's preaching about showing up to submit himself to John? Or maybe it's because Jesus was affirming John's way. John's right. Judgment is coming. The threshing floor will be cleared. And that's my mission. And so Jesus says to John, I need you to baptize me. They argue for a minute. John would say something like, I'm not even fit to tie your sandals together. Now, in the ancient world, sandals weren't just slip-on things, and it wasn't just tying a bow knot and getting out the door. Like you, Most of us, you know, our kids, like you can't even tie their shoes. You have to get them Velcro shoes, but then you put a cell phone in their hand, and they know exactly how to operate it and hack into your bank account right? But, but sandals in the ancient world, they had to lace all the way up to the leg. And so when you actually tie them, there's a way to, to wrap the leg and a way to go through the foot to make them secure because they didn't have like Nike factories giving them like those water, those Crocs, you know, kind of things on their feet. And so there's a whole different way. And John's going, I'm not even fit to tie your shoes and you want me to baptize you. And Jesus says it's necessary. So they go down into the water and Jesus is baptized. Now, here's the text I want you to pay attention to. After Jesus was baptized, the scripture reads, He went up immediately from the water. The heavens suddenly opened for him. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming down on him. And there came a voice from heaven, This is my beloved Son. I take delight in him. There's a few things in the text we got to pay attention to. Jesus wasn't baptized in secret. This wasn't like a special family ceremony where only the closest people were invited. Right? Like, like sometimes we have baptisms nowadays, and, and like just the, the closest friends get to go, and then you have a picnic or a cookout or something. And, and, and this was like public in front of everybody. This is like going down to, um, down to Fish Lake Regional Park, like down to the swim beach, where everybody's hanging out on a really crowded summer day and announcing to everybody, hey, 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 everybody watching. Jeremy's here to be baptized and say that he's giving his life to Jesus. Carry on. And people can stop and like, what in the world? They can come watch? Some people may come celebrate with you. Some people may not know that, you may not know some people are there and they know you. Now they're watching you. See what this religious commitment looks like, and when Jesus would walk around town, and we see this letter in the Gospels, that's the carpenter's son. The carpenter's son, because everybody knew that Mary got pregnant before she was married, while she was engaged. In the ancient world, you would get engaged for a year, betrothed to be married. Says the new, or the King James, right. So, so you would be engaged for a year, and you would actually live with that person for a year before any type of consummation of relationship would be had. And it kind of sets up the most, the, the, the clearest identity of marital purity. We're going to be together, committed for a year, living in your mom's house, the wife's parents' house, and we're not going to lay together so that no one could accuse us of any sexual impropriety. And during that season, Mary gets pregnant. And it wasn't Joseph's baby. And everybody knew it. Everybody knew it. So when you read in the New Testament, in the Gospels, when they say that's the carpenter's son, They're not making less of who Jesus is. They're accusing him of being the product of sin. That your mom wasn't faithful to your dad. You're the car son. And that wasn't a new accusation when Jesus started preaching. People knew it already. And so here goes Jesus. John is preaching, there's one coming who's greater than me. And then Jesus shows up. And everybody's watching, and they're like, what? The carpenter's kid is greater than you? I got baptized by you because I was afraid of that guy. And Jesus is baptized, and everybody's watching. It says, the heavens opened up and spoke. The Scripture doesn't say who all heard, and the Scripture doesn't say who all didn't hear. So we're left with a couple of conversations to have. I'm going to land on one of them, and I can explain why. We can presume that God told a secret just to Jesus. That's that's one option. The heavens opened up just to Jesus, because it does say open up to him, or for him, and the Spirit descended upon him. So, So only Jesus knew what was happening in that moment. It was top secret. It could be that, that just Jesus and John knew what was going on, John the Baptist there, that the two of them had something going on. It could be that the entire crowd that was around heard the heavens open up. I would argue that it's the latter, that the entire group that was there watching and witnessing um, heard the heavens and heard the voice speak. And I would argue that because the scripture would say um, without two or three witnesses, a testimony can't be validated. And here's what's going to happen. John's going to get arrested almost immediately after this passage. So John's in jail. He can't testify anymore. We start to see people watch Jesus from how he teaches. Why else do you let the carpenter's son into the synagogue to teach if you haven't heard something about him? Because he's going to start teaching not long after this. And people respect him. They didn't respect him, and they stopped respecting him later. But for a season, they all buy into what Jesus is doing. Could it be that other people were able to witness to who Jesus was, even for a season? Something amazing happened. It was about the carpenter's son. It was about Jesus of Nazareth. It was wild. The stories begin to unfold. They watch him teach with authority. They watch him do miracles. They see the power of God that descended on him work out through him. So people were able to draw the dots for themselves. So if Jesus has the power to change it all, I want to give you five essential statements where God flips Maslow on his head. And the truth of the matter is the gospel does change everything. Five places where the world gets flipped over that are true of you the moment you say yes to Jesus. Jesus. And it's not because God is withholding things from you. This is what he's already inviting you to. Someone who's inviting you to life isn't trying to withhold something from you, right? God's not keeping it from you. So, so everything that, that I'm gonna share here is already true, but it's true of you the moment you say yes to Jesus. You have to accept the invitation. The first is, I affirm you. I wonder how many of us, if that was true of us, that we were affirmed people, that if we could live into that truth, that that 2024 would already be a better year than any year we've ever had. I affirm you. A voice from heaven spoke. I don't know what kind of home you grew up in. I don't know what kind of of love and care and support was encouraged around you. I don't know what kind of things were spoken of you. Most of the things that were spoken over me weren't very affirming things. And you struggle to find affirmation from other people. Like my my primary love language, if you get into those things, is words of affirmation. Which also means that, that words that aren't affirming cut really deep. Like it's like a double edged sword, right? And yet God looks at me in Jesus and says, I affirm you. You are the Jeremy I want you to be, just as you are. I affirm you. God accepts you. This is my beloved son. My son. No other son. No other dynamic. My son. I was uh, a product of rape. My mom was 15 years old when I was born, and abortion was fairly new, legal, but fairly new. And in a, a doctor, my family went to a clinic, and a doctor told my family that there was too much risk to my mother's life. And so she kept me. She's going to put me up for adoption. And she decided, back in the day, the way it worked, with all the wisdom of a freshly minted 15-year-old, that she was going to keep her baby. My mom was kicked out of high school, my family was kicked out of church. People didn't really care about the story. And and I think for most of my life I have fought to be accepted by anybody. In my home I'm proud of you was how they said I love you. It was never I love you because I love you, it was I'm proud of you. And so I fought to do everything well. I was a top student, I was a top athlete. Um, I was a complete wreck behind the scenes. But, But out front, if I could earn your approval, I did it. Just to hear you say, I accept you. How much energy could I have saved if I had simply heard the words of the Father say, I accept you? I adore you. I adore you. We don't use those words a whole lot. Beloved is not just, oh, I love you. It's not the kind of thing that, 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 that you get on like one of those little, little nasty-tasting Valentine candies, you know, a chalky Valentine, because we don't know what a door means anymore. It's been so washed down and, 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 and limited in its meaning. To call someone beloved Like their full adoration and love and respect and intention is set before you. I adore you. Can you hear the Father singing that over you? Scripture says the Lord sings over us. Can you hear the Father giving you this beautiful lullaby of how he adores you? You are beloved. I adore you. I approve you. Not I will approve you, when, but now I approve you. With whom I am well pleased, with whom I take delight. I approve you. You, you don't have to do anything. The pressure to achieve is gone because the approval's already extended. I approve you. You ever get stuck watching other people on social media and wondering how in the world their lives are so perfect? There's this pastor and his wife and they have four kids. Their house and their outfits always look exactly the same. I don't know how they do it. But the pastor's wife, I won't mention who they are. They're not local, but they're all over the place. And the wife is always talking about how stressed out she is to get the kids ready for church. And then they always pause right in front of the camera as they're going out the door. And they've probably set the scene up for like a week or two or three and probably have a camera crew taking it for them. I don't know. But my house doesn't look like that going to church on Sunday mornings. Like, when you come home and there's, like, cereal half-eaten that's still on the table, you know, kids' clothes are strewn everywhere because they were not for sure which outfit they wanted to wear or was it appropriate. Like, I had one daughter who wanted to wear summer sandals today. Today, I'm like, it's negative eight degrees outside, dear. You at least need some socks to go with your summer sandals. Maybe I should change my shoes, Dad. And I just can't, I cannot get into that life. And yet for all the striving and all the trouble, the father looks at you and says, I approve you. You don't have to be mom of the year, uncle of the year, grandparent of the year, dad of the year, neighbor of the year, employee of the month, whatever. You don't get a special parking spot you have the full approval of God already over you. I approve you. And then the last one, I'm not ashamed of you. God kind of flips his own words on us here. Jesus would say, um, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father. Paul would take it and say, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it's the power of God unto salvation. But God looks at you He says, I'm not ashamed of you. You can look in the mirror all day long and be ashamed of who you see. God doesn't say that about you. The voice spoke publicly. This is my son. For all the accusations that all of you had made in the crowd, the carpenter's kid. This is my son. And I take delight in him. You want to know something that's cool about this? Jesus hasn't done squat yet. In the whole dynamic, Jesus showed up to get baptized by John. He hasn't fought Satan in the wilderness. He hasn't called a single disciple. He hasn't taught a single sermon. He hasn't performed a single miracle. And all of it was already true. This is my Son, with whom I am pleased. Everything we strive for is already provided for us from the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. And so we echo with Paul, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? That may be the chief convincing of the human soul, that God is for you. Because God is for you, you don't have to fear the outcome nor the process of change. Because God is for you, your success rests in his love. No other place. And because God is for you, nothing is insignificant, wasted, or lost. You can take a look at anything you have going on in life And because God is for you, nothing is insignificant. Nothing is wasted. Nothing is lost. And those things being true, not if, but since, those things being true, we can say Jesus changes everything. Flips the world on its head. And it really gets down to one thing. Will you believe it? Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you for your great love over us. Thank you for these truths that speak so much against what the world calls striving. God, be gracious to us. Give us a courageous faith to believe you for all that you say. Because these are game changers, God. Things that we strive for, you already give. Help us to receive it,
0: all by faith,
1: all by grace, all for your glory, amen.
0: Thank you so much for joining us on the Mosaic Maple Grove podcast. I wanna encourage you to take the message you just received and allow it to go deeply into your soul. Let Jesus do the deep work that only he can do. A special thank you to everyone who gives to Mosaic Maple Grove. Your generosity allows this message to go out into the world You can be a part of the Mosaic tribe by going to mymosaicchurch.com. You can also subscribe, rate, and share this podcast with your friends and family. Thanks again for listening. Grace and peace, my friends.